Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. I'm excited to spend a few minutes with you today. You know, we've shared over two years worth of podcasts, and this podcast today is one of my favorite topics. It has the power to make a real difference in your life and mine. And today, wherever you are as you listen to this podcast, I hope the principles you hear can bless your life and help you live better. By the way, if you find these podcasts helpful, you could help by sharing these podcasts with a friend. Word of mouth helps us further our mission. Just share the link and say something like, I thought you might enjoy this podcast. Have a great day. That would help us do a little bit more good. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about trusting the power of process in our lives. At 9.06 a.m. on January 26, 2020, a Sikorsky S-76B helicopter took off from Orange County Airport in Southern California. On that January California morning, only one pilot was aboard. Two pilots were preferred, and the reason was the flight was a short hop from Orange County to Thousand Oaks, and it was an easy run. The pilot was Ara Zaboyan, and the helicopter was operated by Island Express. Conditions that morning were not good. It was cloudy and air traffic was heavy. Now, heavy air traffic is not unusual in Southern California, but combine it with difficult weather conditions and a typical 45-minute helicopter flight can take two hours or more. But pilots who are in a hurry or feel pressured to hurry often take risks that they shouldn't take. And on this morning, Zobayan felt pressured to hurry because aboard his aircraft was a basketball legend. His name, Kobe Bryant. Kobe was born in Philadelphia. His father, Joe Bryant, played in the NBA. And when Kobe was six years old, his father left the NBA to play in Europe, and the Bryants moved to Italy. There, Kobe learned to play basketball and soccer. And when he was 13, they returned to Philadelphia and there, he excelled in basketball in high school. And at the time, NBA allowed players to be drafted out of high school. So upon his graduation at the age of 17, he, or rather his parents, because he was under the age of 18, signed a contract with the Los Angeles Lakers for Kobe to play basketball. His contract as a 17-year-old, $3.5 million. Well, Kobe would go on to play 20 years in the NBA the entire time for the Lakers. His team won five NBA championships, and he was often voted the most valuable player of the year. Well, after his retirement, he took an interest in helping youth learn and compete on the court. He founded the Mamba Sports Academy in Thousand Oaks, California, where youth train and basketball tournaments are held. So on January 26, 2020, Kobe and his daughter, boarded the helicopter to travel to the sports academy for a basketball tournament. In total, there were nine people aboard. Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, six family friends, and the pilot. The skies were overcast at 1,300 feet, and visibility was about five miles. So the pilot was initially flying under VFR, meaning that he was relying on his ability to see the terrain below him. That changed when he was granted SVFR. Special VFR is granted when the cloud ceiling is below 1,000 feet. At 9.30 a.m., Zobayan contacted the Burbank Airport's control tower 
notifying the tower of difficult visibility. And he was told he was flying too low to be tracked by radar. He had been trying to follow Highway 101 to Thousand Oaks, but because of visibility, he lost contact with the ground. And he knew he had mountains all around him. And for some reason, in the dense fog, he inexplicably turned south toward the mountains. At 9.40 a.m., the helicopter climbed rapidly from 1,200 to 2,000 feet in an apparent move to put distance between the aircraft and the mountains below. It seemed that at the time, the pilot had experienced spatial disorientation. Now, this happens when flying through thick clouds, and you become disoriented thinking the ground is somewhere other than where it is. The pilot's inner ear lies to him, and he thinks he's flying straight when, in fact, he might be banking or turning. So instead of flying level, Zobayan was actually descending rapidly, flying at an airspeed of 185 miles per hour. And by the time he realized what was actually happening, it was too late. At 9.45 a.m., the helicopter slammed into the side of the mountain in Calabasas, about 30 miles northwest of downtown L.A., and began burning. Bryant, his daughter, and the other seven occupants were all killed on impact. Now, investigators wondered why, when other air traffic was grounded because of weather, that Zobayan and his company decided to fly anyway. Was the pilot under pressure by his company because they were transporting Kobe Bryant? Well, investigators concluded from recordings and their best judgment that the pilot was trying to impress Bryant and the others rather than making a decision based on good flying judgment. The investigators conclude that even good pilots can end up in bad situations. That's why there are flight guidelines to help protect them and help them exercise good judgment and decision-making. Imagine if Zobayan would have had a process for when he would fly and when he wouldn't fly, and the process said if the weather prevented other aircraft from flying, he too would not fly. Kobe Bryant and eight other people would be alive today. This is the power of process. Process helps you navigate through the uncertain and cloudy times of your life. A systematic approach can help you arrive at clear decisions in unknown territory. You know, businesses and sports teams and organizations of all kinds have processes. Processes are well thought through routines and means of making decisions that are implemented to take emotion or judgment out of the hands of the individual who might be susceptible to mood or pressure or other things. The lack of process means that you're left often to make decisions in the moment, which leaves you vulnerable. And some of us have processes in place, but we're not patient with the process. We don't let the process do the work for us. Instead, we hurry, thinking that we know better, or we don't face the facts of our situation and don't realize the process is there for a reason. You know, a few years ago, an awesome family flew their small plane to Iowa for their annual hunting trip. Aboard the aircraft were Jim and Kirk Hansen, brothers, their father, Jim Sr., Jim's sons and grandsons, Kirk's sons and sons-in-law, were all on the trip together. Kirk was flying the plane, and the family had landed in South Dakota the day before the crash. Now, news reports indicate that the Hansen family stayed at the Thunder Stick Lodge in Chamberlain, 
and on the morning of the crash, everyone went hunting except Kirk and a passenger. A lodge employee took the two men to the airport with a ladder, and they stopped at a hardware store to buy some isopropyl alcohol. According to the witnesses, the pilot and the passenger worked for about three hours to remove the snow and ice that had accumulated on the airplane overnight. There was less than about a quarter of an inch of ice on the airplane when they started, and the ladder they brought from the lodge was approximately seven feet tall and didn't allow them to get to the top of the tail. So the ice on the tail wasn't removed prior to takeoff. You see, the way an airplane creates lift is when air flows over the wings. And because the top side of the wing is longer than the underside of the wing, the airflow over the top of the wing travels faster, thereby creating lift. So airflow over the wing is critical to making an airplane fly. And if ice is on the wing, it alters airflow over the wing and over the tail wing, reducing the lift force that keeps the plane in the air and potentially causing aerodynamic stall. So if you have ice on a wing or tail, it can cause a temporary loss of control. Well, apparently, when Hansen was done preparing the plane, the weather conditions had not improved, and the family was at the airport ready to go home. The news reported that the lodge employee said he asked Hansen not to leave and mentioned that they had room for the group to stay another night. But Hansen said they needed to get home. So the pilot told the airport employee that the airplane was 98% good and the remaining ice would come off during takeoff. It was snowing hard at the time the plane took off. Hansen completed a flight control check before taxiing from the ramp and there was still snow on the left side of the rear of the aircraft. The Chamberlain Airport manager said he'd been plowing snow all morning and weather conditions were deteriorating. Here's a report from the voice recorder. At 12.14, the recording begins. 12.17, a passenger says a prayer asking for protection during the flight. 12.19, the engine starts. 1222, Chamberlain Airport employee communicates weather conditions and other information to the pilot. 1229, airport employee says, it don't look good to me. I don't know what you guys are thinking. A few seconds later, the pilot asks, is the runway in good condition? Airport employee responds, I would say I can hardly keep up with the snow. At 1229, 47, 10 seconds later, the pilot responds, we're going to be just fine. A few seconds later, airport employee says the runway is not clear, followed by, you guys are crazy. I got berms on this thing. I got to get the snow out of here, and that don't look good to me. One minute later, the pilot responds, I think we're going to be just fine. Then takeoff begins. After that, stall warning sounds are heard, and then a few seconds later, the recording ends. The NTSB said when the plane took off, it began turning to the left. It climbed 170 feet above the ground when the wings banked right and rolled over steeply to the left. The aircraft reached a peak altitude of 460 feet. The airspeed stayed about 112 miles an hour during the initial climb. But then, as the plane banked over, the speed slowed to 92 miles an hour and the data recorder stopped at 1233 when the airplane crashed. In all, nine passengers were killed. Now, the point here is not to be critical of the Hansons. I knew them, and they were and are fine men with an amazing family. The point is that all of us, from time to time, 
make misjudgments because we're not patient with the process or we don't have a process. And while these misjudgments may not cost us our life, as was the case with the Hansons, they can have an impact on our life and well-being. So why do businesses and organizations have processes? What is the purpose of process? Well, first, we have to realize that everything is a process. <laughs> when you make breakfast in the morning, no matter how informal, you're still likely following a process. But the most powerful processes, the processes that allow us to progress faster, reach our goals, lead amazing teams, and change, are those we want to talk about today. And there are key skills and ways of thinking through and establishing processes that if you can learn these things, you'll find you bring incredible power to your life. You know, many of you listening today are leading a business or a family or a ministry, and you find at times with some people, you get the results you want. But at other times, your team doesn't do what you need them to do. They change the way of doing things that work, and they don't do what they said they would do, and your team doesn't follow the course of success. A well-defined process can fix all of that. Let's just say you're a great cook. In fact, you're famous for your pasta sauce, yet it's become so popular that you can't simply produce enough. So you hire a team of chefs to help you scale production. But with multiple chefs, every batch of sauce tastes different, even though everyone uses the same ingredients. And this happens because of a poor process or no process. The ingredients list is only half the recipe. You need a solid step-by-step -step method to create consistent results. And the same goes for your business processes. If you don't create repeatable business processes that everyone can follow and understand, you'll find you get different outcomes every time. And this will result in a lot of wasted time, loss of morale on your team, and keep you from reaching your goals. When Vince Lombardi took over the Green Bay Packers in 1959, things had been going badly for the Packers for a while. For 10 years, the team had been on a downward losing streak. The year before Lombardi took over was their worst season ever. They only won one game. They were so bad that the year's top draft pick opted to play for the Canadian League rather than go to Green Bay. Well, the Packers improved to seven wins and five losses in Lombardi's first year. In his second year, the Packers won eight games while winning the NFL's Western Conference. In 1961, the Green Bay Packers won the NFL championship. Now, Lombardi was the coach of the Packers for eight years, and in that time, they won six division titles. They won five NFL championships, three of them in a row and the first two Super Bowls ever to be held. And overall, the regular season record of the team with Lombardi as coach was 98 and 30. Now, many people think brilliant strategy helped the Packers vanquish other teams. But the other teams knew exactly what the Packers were going to do. We have a little trickery, Lombardi said, but we really don't need it. Why? Because they relentlessly followed a process. Lombardi took nothing for granted. He established a tradition of starting from scratch each year, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from year to year. He began the year with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, holding a football in his right hand, this 
is a football. Everything for Lombardi was a process. Practice, conditioning, game preparation. Every process had clear operating guidelines and practices the players and coaches would follow. The processes were written, followed, and reviewed. And when a player showed up for training camp, there were not a lot of decisions to be made. The player plugged into the process. And the processes were designed to create excellence. And as a result, they did one thing really well. They won. Now, can you think of one area in your life that if you had a process would make your life or business better? If so, then what are the steps to bringing processes that create consistent and better results to your way of living to your life? Well, first, it might be helpful to make an inventory of all the processes you use in your life or your business right now. For example, is there a process for enrolling a new customer in your business? Is the process written down? Do your team members receive training? What are the other processes that you use? Well, after making this inventory, you may realize, well, I don't have any processes or none of my processes are written down or we don't train on our processes. The inventory of things will help you realize where you have gaps. Remember, process does the heavy lifting for you. If your life feels like every day you're making and remaking decisions as to whether you should or when you will or how things should flow, if you feel like you lack willpower or can't get things to align the way you should, then it's likely that you need a process. Let's say that you're a mom or dad trying to run your household, and mornings are the most chaotic. Everyone seems to be late or running this way and that. The house is a disaster when the kids leave for school. And it isn't the happiest time at home. What process could you employ to help make things automatic? Yes, a schedule would help. Time for waking up, time for breakfast, time for chores. That's a schedule. But what process could you employ? What about a process that defines the duties of a child? When they account for those duties, what role you play in the process and what role they play? How things are handled when people don't do their part of the process? All of these things could help. You see, by writing this down and getting buy-in from family members, you stop making every morning a decision disaster because what happens in the morning is reduced to a process. The same goes for your business. What is the process for onboarding new team members? Is it written down? Is it shared? You can see how a process would make all the difference. Well, once your inventory of your processes is complete, you can see that there may be a process you need to put in place in your life or business. So what's the next step? Well, before we consider that next step, let me interject something. Business, teams, and groups everywhere nowadays are seeing the value of process. Many companies have process engineers, and many areas of science are seeing process as the answer. You know, not long ago in the Journal of Clinical Psychological Science, Two researchers mapped where psychological science is headed. And it seems to be that it's headed from random diagnoses of declared conditions toward underlying processes that promote human flourishing and change. The process for healing from addiction or anxiety or leaving behind unhelpful thoughts and behaviors is making a difference. And science is finding that by following well-designed processes, 
people make more progress than they do by random treatments prescribed by caregivers. Their argument is that processes, not techniques, solve your problems. Why is that? Well, I think of it this way. Process is like a school bus. It's simple. You show up at the corner near your home, the bus stops, you get on, and eventually you arrive at school. It's that simple. Without the bus, you have to decide, am I riding my bike? If I do, where do I park it to be safe? Do I have a lock for my bike? Where do I put my books while I ride? If not a bike, will I get a ride from my mom or my friends? And at what time will they pick me up? Will I walk? Is it too far? Who will I walk with? And a host of other decisions. But riding the bus is straightforward. It eliminates all those questions. Likewise, if you're recovering from an addiction, you just follow the process. You don't have to ask and answer and expose yourself to triggers and reconsider each time. The process carries you to your end destination. And it's remarkable to me that the world of psychology is opening its eyes to what business and other industries have known all along. There is power in the process. So, after creating your process inventory, identify one area of your life where a process is needed. Perhaps your morning routine, your exercise process, your process used in business to find leads, or whatever it might be. Then, determine the scope of your process. What does that mean? The scope should define both what the process will cover and what it won't cover. For example, let's say you're creating a sales process for answering general inbound sales calls. You might note that this covers all inbound calls from small and medium businesses, but this process really isn't relevant for large enterprise customers. They need more customized attention. So you would eliminate them from the scope of your process. Next, map the process. A process map is a visual representation of a series of connected activities that, when strung together, deliver a meaningful outcome. This process chart or map will help you think through the ideal process flow for people and things and the timing of things. On your map, you'll put boxes for each activity in the process and include a short description of what happens in those boxes. The result will be that your process will have an order of how things should happen and when they should happen. Now, you might think that this sounds like a lot of work, but I promise the work expended to create a meaningful process will be minimal compared to the work you avoid by having a process. Let's consider the NFL coach. What's their job? Analysis of the upcoming opponent? That requires an analysis process. Game planning requires a process. Organizing practice, who will lead what part of practice with what desired outcome, requires a process. Calling the plays during the game, organizing player care, workouts and diets, recruiting, and a host of other roles of coaching are all managed and handled through written and well-thought-out processes. You know, one of my favorite sports to watch is tennis. I like it because it is intense at times. Everything rides on the performance of singular tasks, a serve, a return, a volley. And it's full of pressure because there are no team members to rely on. It is entirely up to the individual to rise or fall. As a result, 
We traveled to the U.S. Open, to Indian Wells, and other places to watch tennis from time to time. Now, one of my favorite stories about the power of process comes from the world of tennis. One of the lesser-known names in men's U.S. tennis in 2009 was Marty Fish. Marty was 28 years old. He had had a semi-good career, but never really was able to beat the major names in tennis. He was good, but not great. And he was ranked in the top 150, but he had flaws in his game. He tried each year to get into shape and make better decisions and play better and do his best to improve. But when he looked at those who were atop the leaderboard, it was obvious they were in significantly better shape. They were more dedicated and they had risen to a level well beyond him. And the truth was, he had never really given himself to the process of being a champion. So he never was a champion. But as he faced his 29th birthday, he looked at himself and made a decision. He decided to give himself entirely to the process of becoming excellent. So he called a physiotherapist named Christian Lacasio. He told Christian that he would give himself to the process of full dedication to becoming the best in the world. He wanted to be invited to the World Tour Final at the end of the year, where the top eight players in the world are invited to compete. So Christian sat down with him and told Marty that he had to become as fit as possible. So the first process they put in place was diet and exercise. He set out to lose 15 pounds. He cut alcohol, pizza, and junk food from his diet. He followed the processes of a healthy diet. Next, he was to get into the best shape of his life, and he gave himself to the process. The process demanded four more, four additional hours a day than he was used to giving. It included dynamic warm-up exercises, movement drills, side-to-side, suicides, weight training, and a level of effort that Marty had never had the discipline to do prior to his life. But when he gave himself to the process, it seemed automatic. Next was the process of focus and the mental part of the game. Again, he gave himself to the process. Soon, he was fit and focused. He had lost 31 pounds. He won his first tournament of the year. Then he won the second. His ranking in the world started to rise. He was able to keep his focus during matches, something he'd never been able to do before. And he went on to beat Andy Murray, Rafael Nadal, Andy Roddick, and rose to number seven in the world. And talk to anyone in the tennis world at the time, Marty was the least likely to have this kind of success late in his career. He had rarely demonstrated the desire or skill to be a top player, but here he was transformed in a single year. Now, I believe the same goes for you and me. We, like Marty, have the talent to be great, but we don't give ourselves to the process or find a process or are patient with the process to become who we can become. Some of us don't submit to the process. The process may exist at our job or in our company or in our religion or in our home, but we don't submit. Sometimes because it seems restrictive or difficult or boring, but when we do submit to the process, when we give ourselves to the team or to the program, we find that we, like Marty, come out transformed. We win. You know, any college student understands this. When you first go to college, there's a process. I remember my first day of class, the professor told me, 
I would need to spend three hours outside of class for every hour inside class. Wow, I thought. This class meets three hours a week, and I have to give nine hours outside of class just for one of my six classes? He also told us to live in the lab. Follow the lab outline, and we would do fine. Well, I didn't at first. I thought I could do it on my own. The lab seemed hard to do. But when I learned to give myself to the process, my grades improved. Last, remember, be patient with the process. Going to church or prayer or Bible study may seem boring, and the people there may not be your favorite type of people. But over time, the process will make you more humble, more giving, more spirit-filled. And who knows, but you and I might just become the type of people God intends by laying out His process for our living. Let the process work in and on you. So, as we end today, remember our pilots. Give yourself, protect yourself by plugging into and being patient with the process. Do a process inventory in your life and find one or two places that need a process so you can progress more. Determine the scope of that process and create a process map. Outline the activities that will lead you to your desired outcome. Then get your team, your family, or you following that process and watch. Things that used to be hard will become automatic. You will stress less, make fewer decisions because the process does that for you. And you will rise to be better before you know it. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.